All Your Children Scattered by Beata Umubieye Mares is not so much about the 1994 Tutsi genocide itself, but rather about the lives lived by those in its wake. Those who hid from it, those who fought against it, those who fled it, and those who were born into it. Telling the story of a family through the eyes of three generations, Blanche, her mother Immaculata, and her son Stokely, one of the many remarkable things about All Your Children Scattered is how Beata Umubieye Mares is able to tell the story on a very human scale without ever overlooking the utterly monstrous and inhuman scale of the events. All Your Children Scattered, translated by Alison Anderson, is at its heart a story about family, loss, and the desire to return home, whatever home means. Beata Umubieye Mares, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'd like to begin, actually, with something that the author um, Gael Fay uh, said about your book. He said, this story tells all our stories, which is quite a remarkable thing to say. And it really made me question how a writer even begins to approach a subject of such magnitude as genocide. Did you feel when you set out to write this book that despite writing one very particular story about a particular family, that you were perhaps inevitably also writing, as Gail Fai says, all of the stories of your people. Actually, I started writing earlier before this first novel. I started by writing short stories. And this question, very accurate that you're asking, I asked it to myself. I asked it to myself when I started writing my first novel, Ejo, which is a French in a word in, in, in Kenya Rwanda that means at the same times yesterday and tomorrow. And and when I started writing, and I was quite old because I was more I was more than 30 years old, I asked myself, how can I write a, a, a story that is not a caricature that people won't read and say, now I know everything about the Rwandan uh, a survivor or a Rwandan survivor woman. And that's why I started by writing different stories because I wanted to show that there is a diversity. And after that, after having been through this, all this process of how do I write a lot of different stories that can tell one story and vice versa. Then I wrote poetry and then I was, I think, ready to write this novel. So it's a whole process for me that, uh, that I had to, to go through to, to be able to do that. And indeed, a long process. So the French version was published in 2019. So mm-hmm. we're talking a good 25 years after the, the genocide itself and 20 two years after the the events of the book essentially begin. It sounds like from what you've said that that period of time was necessary for you personally to to sort of to to digest perhaps what happened and to find the way in which you, you were able to write about it. Absolutely. There is this French writer, Charlotte Delboux, who wrote this absolutely fundamental trilogy about Auschwitz. And, and she said that when, when she was in Auschwitz, she was thinking and she was telling other women that when I, 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 if I survive, I'm going to write a book about this, but I won't publish it directly. 
after the war and after what I've been through, I will wait 10 or 20 years. And she explained that maybe in the aftermath, it people won't be ready to hear that or to understand that. And maybe it will take her time also to be able to, yeah, to process this. And I think I've been through the same thing. First of all, I, I had to, you know, to somehow. And often people ask me, was it writing? Was writing something yeah, healing for you? Or how, how do you put that? Maybe yeah. cathartic. Cathartic, yes. And I often say, no, I had to first, you know, go to see a shrink and, 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 and make my, my own life as a survivor in order to be able to write a book that is not just uh, and when I say just, it's not if or it, that is not just a testimony of, of my story. Because what I realized when I arrived in France is that often people say that a genocide is unspeakable. But I didn't have the experience of, of not being able to speak. My experience was, even if people were very nice, welcoming, and, and giving me all what I needed to heal, I realized that most people were not able or ready to listen to me. So I, I say it was unlistenable. I don't know how, how I can say that in English. And, 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 and then a, a testimony would, would not have been for me the, 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 the proper way to, to, to get those people listen to me. And, and so it took me that time to be able to, to find the art, to be able to craft that story that is, is meant to tell all our stories. I find that very interesting, that concept of sort of unlistenable. And it's, it's fascinating because the word works perfectly in English, but we, we have the word unspeakable. It's part of the vocabulary. Mm. But unlistenable or unhearable, it doesn't, it doesn't really exist. And it makes me... It makes me wonder why, actually, now, like almost like we we don't want to admit that we are unable to to hear something, that we're unable to listen to a testimony. It feels almost like as as the people who are receiving the story that we are pushing away a certain responsibility, in a sense, by saying, "Oh, it's unspeakable." It's a, whereas, in fact, no, as you say, not unspeakable, unlistenable, and we, as the listener, need to make the effort. Absolutely. And this is something that all victims have to face at one moment in their process of healing. Is are, are there the good conditions to be able to speak out? Who is going to hear me and what are they going to do with, with my words that are not just simple words, that are not just testimony? Is It, it is as if you, you take your heart and, and you put it on the table and who and this needs really soft hands and soft ears to 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 receive it. Mm -hmm. And that 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 concept of responsibility, I guess, is an interesting one for the the writer as well. There's one moment when one of the characters in your book writes that when every letter is traced with a drop of your own blood, you don't go pointlessly flaunting yourself. Mm. You learn to fill the blank spaces with eloquent gazes. And I was wondering. If you could speak a little bit to that, I suppose the, the the process, the feeling of actually writing itself, was that weight of responsibility that we feel in this sentence, what, did that mirror what the weight of responsibility that you felt? 
yes, I, I, I always have this weight of responsibility. But for me to point that out is also a way to say that a lot of people, especially strangers who write about the genocide in Rwanda or more generally who write about Africa, don't ask themselves all those questions of responsibility. Where do I stand and what can I say, what I'm not, can, and what am I not able to say, why and how do I respect the, the, the voice and the silence of the victim in what I write and what I say about the, this story. And, and as a survivor, I think, of course, people would say, of course, you're very legitimate to write about this. But as a survivor, I always think about other survivors, but also those who are dead, who are no longer there to talk. And I feel a very, yeah, a strong sense of responsibility toward them about what am I going to say. And I, I really, you know, there is this, this quote from, a, it's, a, it's in Zadie Smith's Changing Mind when she talks about David Foster Wallace. And I read that sentence when I was writing my first novel. And she says something like, I don't have the exact words, but say, good literature uh, aims is to discomfort the comfortable and, and, and comfort the, the discomfort. And for me, this is very important. It's, I, I don't write only for foreigners, French people, Westerners to know about Rwanda. I really want to also write stories that are going to comfort my people, especially survivors who will say, this is it. This is exactly what, what we feel. And also respecting the Rwandan way of talking. Our language is full of silences. And we will come on certainly to talk about this concept of silence later on. I'm interested, I mentioned in the introduction that the, the book is written from three points of view, essentially. And I must admit, as a reader, when I f first encountered the switch, so we begin with the voice of Blanche. And Blanche mm -hmm. is such a defined, such a powerful, such a, I guess, charismatic voice that when we then... Switched, we changed chapter and we were into the, the voice of um, the mother, Immaculata. Immaculata, yes. I, I was quite surprised. I wasn't because I, I hadn't read particularly about the book and I wasn't expecting this change of voice. Mm. Uh, and I'm curious to know in your conception of the book, was it always obvious to you that this had to be told as a multi-generational, multi-voiced story? Or was there one of the three voices that came to you first and the others sort of almost came like a surprise as they did to me. I, I had a very, very clear plan from the very beginning. As it was my first time writing a novel, I, I really, you know, I used to work as a project manager on health issues. And, and I started this novel as a project with a, a very clear plan and what are the outcomes I, I hope to have. And, and so those three voices, the entanglement of, of the, those three lives was very clear from the very beginning. I wanted really to shift between the, the perspective of Blanche Immaculata and, and Stockley, who is Blanche's son, to kind of juxtapose the three narratives and, 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 and show three visions of the world. Because for me, the... the People will say that the, the, this book talks about the genocide. And I, I will say, and this is, I think, what makes it 
yeah, popular here in France and maybe I hope abroad is that it, it talks about transmission between generation, the, 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 and, and especially between Africa and Europe. And those three visions of the words having different language, different experiences was a way for me again to avoid like a, the, the way maybe we are caricatured as African. They want us, people, the word want us to be very simple. They are the bads and the, 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 the goods and the Hutus and the Tutsis. And, and I wanted to say that, no, we are complex. Our lives are complex, like all lives all around the world. And that I think it comes across immediately when we meet Blanche. As I said a moment ago, the the voice is so defined, the the the, the character is so charismatic, the writing is so is so wonderful. And so let's spend a little bit of time with her now. So when we first meet Blanche, she is on the point of going home for the first mm. time after after three, three years. years away. So this is 1997 now, after she left in 1994. And I suppose one of the things that first struck me was when I realized how much can happen in three years, in fact. So we're getting this sense with Blanche that it's almost like she's been away for a lifetime. She feels mm. this kind of complete, not, not disconnect, but just a, a, a real like a distance, I suppose, from from the from Rwanda, from the, the town of her of her birth. And and I, I'm just curious because you can reflect upon that, that sort of how what it is that sort of in that made those three years for Blanche so distant in a way because I think for a lot of people who do live in other countries two or three years in itself is not necessarily a massive amount of time to spend away whereas clearly for Blanche it has been sort of definitive and formative in some way Yes, in this novel, I will say that it's also a re reflection about time and the fact that if you read it, you will you have to accept that time loses its linearity and, and, and the time of those who have left and those who stayed is never the same. And this is like an experience for all the people who live in exile, for example. But the thing is, she leaves at a very crucial moment. She leaves at the beginning of the genocide. Her mother tells her that as she is mixed race, she can hide in the convoys of the Westerners who are evacuated at the beginning of the genocide. And she, and she says, go, forget your language, forget who you are, become white, and, and then you will, you will survive. And, and, and the mother survives too, which, is, which, which was unexpected. And, when, and so those three years for Blanche, it's at the same time the experience of not being there during the three months of the genocide. So she carries a, a heavy burden of guilt for having left. And also when she arrives in France, it's her first time leaving and discovering the country of her father that she has never met. And also she, she becomes like, yeah, it's a coming, how do you say this in English? Come to age. She, 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 dis she, she discovers her country, had the other part of her whiteness. She, she falls in love and she, and she met, she meets with her husband. And also she, she, she 
we understand, I think I'm not spoiling when I say that, we understand that also she she becomes pregnant because when she comes back in Rwanda, she she is almost, uh, yeah, she's going to become a mother. So we all have in our lives, I think, some moments like that where everything changes, everything happens and and. and is going to design the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. And in, I guess in that sense, the moment she comes back to Rwanda, as you say, it's sort of, it's important in itself because it's after three years away and it's a sort of a homecoming. But also as she is, as she is in the early stages of her pregnancy, she's also at a moment of, an important moment of transition in her own yes. life, in fact. And, as a woman. Mm. And, and in her perspective of motherhood as well. And in, I guess, in her relationship with her mother. And that's something which we will see the consequences of not immediately, actually, but as the as the book unfolds and as she, you know, she learns what it means it's or doesn't mean to to be a mother. But but just yeah. staying with this idea of her, her her initial return, there's a couple of moments where she uses the term nostalgia. Um and I thought that was that was really that was really interesting in a way because I suppose uh, often we we connect the idea of nostalgia with a certain, not exactly happiness, but a certain kind of comforting feeling. Whereas, for example, she describes the bitter nostalgic gaze that she cast on everything. And so there seems to be something in Blanche's nostalgia, which is not exactly comforting, but I suppose disturbing in some way. Yes, of course, because... Actually, the first not- nostalgia that we all have, and I think as r- writers we, we carry our, all our lives, is the nostalgia of childhood. And, and, and because this is a place we're not no longer going to be anymore. And, and it's, I, I talk about this kind of nostalgia that is not the one that when you're abroad or away from your country, but you know you're going to return or you're going, you're going to see your beloved one again once again but the, the the nostalgia of places or who we were that we're no longer going to to see or no longer going to be and for her it's it's just all this transition from the fact that as a mixed race she was considered white in 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 africa and when she arrives in europe she's considered black and the, the fact that she's yeah, she's trying to, to, to be someone, the same person for everybody. And, and she has the nostalgia of something that she, maybe she, she, she's never going to manage to be in the eyes, eyes of the others. So it's, it's also about identity. How do you build, build your own identity? How do you become a person when all the time people around you, depending on which land you are, are are telling you something different. How do you become someone that everybody is, or some people are saying, no, you're not that, or you're that, and at the end of the day, you want to be something, someone. Yeah. And in fact, at a moment, she describes herself as a stranger in my own home. Yes. And in, in, I think in the context that she's saying that, it's about you know, how she feels on, the, on returning to this changed country. But from what you're saying, it's also it's something that runs deeper. It seems that she is, in a sense, condemned to be a stranger everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. And all the time, mm-hmm. yes. 
But um, the, the the whole story is is just about how she's going to manage to not transmit this uneasiness to her son. Yes, yeah, yeah. And to thanks to love. The uh, the next voice that we encounter, as I said, is Immaculata, Blanche's mm. mother. And when we when we first encounter her, or rather the idea of her as Blanche has built her up in in her mind, I guess, in the years she's been away. We first get the sense of readers as Immaculata, almost as this kind of monolithic character, because she has not exactly taken a vow of silence, but she has gone silent. She has not spoken mm-hmm. for yeah, for a, a period of a period of time as a result of the of the the events of the of the genocide. And I think, obviously, as readers, you know, engaging with language and engaging with words, that is something that is quite hard to to penetrate on first meeting. And then, and I guess maybe this explains the the shock and the surprise I, I expressed earlier. Then we get Arthur's voice. We get inside her head, and we actually realise that this is not a sort of a, a monolithic, sort of static person yes. at all, but somebody whose internal life is as rich as ever. But there mm. has been a very definite reason and decision why she is is silent. So would you be able to talk a little bit about Immaculata, about her character, and also about what it was that led to this 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 condition of silence in her mm. in her life? Mm. With Immaculata I tried to portray the generation of our mothers, those who were born just before or at the moment of the independence of African countries, and especially in Rwanda, she is a Tutsi woman, and and she she first goes to she first meets with white people when she when she goes to boarding school with her nuns, and 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 then she's going to fall in love with a Hutu man, but like the the big story won't let them live together, be together the political and ethnical tensions and 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 then she 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 meets met, meets with a frenchman the blanche's father and she marries him and for for that generation those times she, she's that that kind of people who were on those times they were telling african people like white people or things coming from western countries were superior this was progress this was and and so for her marrying a white man is a kind of lifting up in a society and having and it, this is why she also names her daughter Blanche which means white in it's a real name in French but it's not it's peculiar to to call your mixed race child Blanche and and, and this is this is from something i really saw in in Butari in my home city there was a girl named Blanche and 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 then so people will say I'm not going to tell the whole story, but at one moment she ends up being a single mother with those two kids from different fathers. One is from the Frenchman and the other is from the Hutu man. And she 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 tries to do her best to raise them. Uh, but this generation of, of mothers thought, and, and, and I think it was all around the world, that being silenced about painful things is the best way to protect your children and this is what she does about Stockley about Blanche and 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 her son Bosco but come the 
the 80s and the beginning of a civil war in Rwanda and her son Bosco leaves because he joined the, 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 the guerrilla, the RPF guerrilla, and then and then the genocide arrives and, and then her, her daughter leaves for France and 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 this is and, and then she survives miraculously and hidden in the cellar uh, below a book sh- uh, bookstore and 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 when Blanche comes back they try to like have a d- dialogue again and try to 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 repair their hearts but they have been they have been through so much pain each one differently she as a survivor of a genocide her son Bosco who, who was part of this army that stopped the genocide but doing that they they discovered so many mass graves that they are all all those soldiers are kind of traumatized and the daughter who was gone was an exile and 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 she she tries to still be that mother who gathers the family but it's really hard for her people always not always sometimes people tell me she's a strong woman and i say no i don't like this expression that is very popular to say strong women i say i say she's she's a fragile woman she's she's just a woman of that time who tries to do her best but sometimes it doesn't work and at she collapses at, at one moment when she 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 becomes mute. So she's not that strong. She just have has to to face so many ordeals. And that's there's an interesting tension in that idea of of, of muteness as well, because at a moment, and as you've just described it there, you you write the silence is a defensive weapon, which a woman can use her whole life long against men, against her progeny, against herself. And there's certainly this idea that you know, and I guess connected to her collapse that. She 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 almost had no choice to to do this for her own protection and for the protection mm. of those around her, and yet yes. on the other side, and this is one of the, I think one of the most powerful sentences of the book. You write, "It is silence that devastates those who remain, that walls up the void. You stop yourself from telling him about silence kills memories, and so in the sort of the immediate sense of preservation and protection, silence mm. is quite effective. But on the longer scale." of sort of protecting families, of protecting people, of protecting memory, it's it devastating. Important. Yes, yes, that's it. Absolutely. And and so the, the, the I, I put at the center of the book a proverb from Kenya Rwanda. Kenya Rwanda is my mother tongue. It's the, it's the same language for all Rwandans. Contrary to different African countries, where, when you have different languages or dialects, we only have one language that is Kenya Rwanda. There's very rich and poetic language and this proverb says uh, that which is translated in in english to the, the neck is the lead of sorrow and and it really represents that the fact that when the sorrow is is so huge the words get stuck in the neck and that you can't talk any any longer and so the, the my whole my whole point by writing this novel when i created those character was how can i lead how can I open the 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 couvercle du chagrin, the lid of sorrow, and 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 have healing words connecting those characters again, which is what what we should all do in our families when when there is too much silence, try to 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 talk together to to bring back a kind of dialogue between between us. And I guess one of the I suppose particularities, although I guess it's quite a common thing increasingly so in the case of of Blanche and her family is that the number of languages 
involved. So, of course, you have Kinyoanda and you have French. And then there's this kind of, there's this moment where you write that to, to own two languages completely is to be hybrid, to carry two songs mm. within, mm. each one cloaked in a cape of interlaced words. Do you think there's a, there's a case in like where the situation where there are several languages and particularly one involving people who are completely bilingual and, and sort of hybrid characters where it is difficult to have that coming together to open that lid of sorrow because of the I suppose the different souls that exist within each of the people I don't think so I think there are different languages in in this in this story you have of course you have French and Kinyarwanda but you have also the language of silence the language of bodies and also the music and 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 sometimes when you don't manage to communicate with each other through like the the official language say french or kinyarwanda then you can communicate through the other languages silence which is very as you said very tricky don't use it too much but try to understand the silence of the other maybe a way uh, to connect with him or her and, and what Blanche manages to say, to do with her son is communicate through music. And, and so I think, and, and, and also you have to, I mean, as, as a bilingual person, for me, having those two languages is, is a way also sometimes to, um, uh, to find, if I don't find something in, in French, I can, I can, or, or something there are, Things that are typically random and random, and I, I try to translate it in, in in French, and 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 this broaden the 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 capacity of French to say our our experience. For example, Fra Blanche, she she finds she 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 she, she, she speaks both languages, but she finds French like a public corset because it's not only speaking French when she speaks French. Her mother wants her to perform Frenchness, and 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 she's she doesn't feel comfortable with that. And and whereas Kinya Rwanda, as as she says, is her her backbone, and it's also something that is very important in transmission, especially for mixed race families and families who are who live abroad or in exile how important it is to transmit your mother tongue or your father tongue, your native tongue to, to your children, for them to, to build that identity that is um, healing. You see, people have been coming here from elsewhere forever. Italians, Russians, Portuguese, Moroccans, Malians. The language of their fathers and mothers was passed on for one or two generations, but there were times when it was lost sooner because the children had to become real French citizens. Their names, which are transmitted officially from father to child, cannot be erased completely even when they are truncated, as with some Armenian names, where they remove the suffix yon, the names remain and spread through society 
more or less indifferently, more or less tensely. Sometimes the trace is lost through marriage, brides easing into French names with either the relief that they'll no longer hear their last name mispronounced or the regret of giving up a little by erasing a lot. But what stays longest, Mama? And this I realized very quickly is the memory in our belly by perpetuating the flavors transported in the suitcases of exile, by passing recipes on from mother to son or daughter, the descendants of a shared distant ancestors buried in Algiers, Krakow, Dakar or Barcelona create a community of taste that never yields to the eradication of one's origins. Even when nostalgia has dried up and the old yellowed photographs no longer interest the younger generations, there are still dishes that render in today's language the fragrance of childhood, of feast and laughter in accent hidden deep wounds, separations, silences that cannot say their names. All the ancestral curses and antiquated fairy tales which one spice will suffice to revive. And yet it, there's an, and it's sort of quite an interesting moment, I think, with, with Stokely when, and again, I don't want to give too much away about the story, but when he's, he's in sort of communication with Immaculata. And mm. I think you write something like, you know, he didn't, he didn't really learn Kinyoanda and he didn't miss it so much, in fact. And there was something I felt like quite a, a certain sense of relief there in a way, because I think a lot of, a lot of pressure is put on parents of, of mixed yes. heritage and with mi- lots of languages to make sure there is this transmission that it, and that it's solid in some way. And mm. with Stokely, we find this, this sort of, this ease, I guess, maybe it's the ease of, of being young <laughs> in some way where he, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't have it so much, but he doesn't regret it so much either. And it certainly doesn't prevent communication with his grandmother either. Yes, this is, and you, I, I try to, to tell this blossoming relationship between the Stockley and, and his grandmother, because when she arrives in France, when she sees him for the first time she's mute but this little kid is going to manage to bring her back to language but it's a way to bring her back to life but at the same time uh, Blanche doesn't put a lot of pressure on him this is something that she has understood and 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 as you say very correctly we don't have to put too much pressure on those children ask them too much but sometimes uh, this is something we do <laughs> and and f- f- from my own experience i know that I, I i live in bordeaux and my mother lives also in bordeaux and i always speak in rwanda with my mother but when my children were born and uh, their father is french french 100% french and I wanted to, to, to teach them King Rwanda, but it was quite complicated because I always speak French with my husband. And so I asked my mother to help me and say, okay, let's speak. Let's be, let's the two of us speak King Rwanda. 
my, my children. And she refused to speak Kinyarwanda to them. And this is something uh, I speak with a lot of other, other mixed race uh, who have a Rwandan mother. They all, I mean, I will say 80% of them refused to speak Kinyarwanda to their grandchildren. And this is something to connect with what you, you were saying. I think my generation, maybe we wanted to, to, to bring them into this culture. And this is important. You have to learn the language. And maybe our, grand, our mothers, their grandmothers, they feel like they have to protect them from this very painful and, and this history. I don't know. But then I hope, like in my novel, that my children one day will decide to learn Kinyarwanda by themselves. I, I, I leave this open to them. It's like religion. When you grow up, you choose. <laughs> right. <laughs> but also parents can, can lay the ground as well, I guess, you know, as, as, long, as, it's, as long as the doors aren't closed, I suppose. <clears throat> is the, yes, the yes. Keep the thing. doors and the, and the windows open. Mm-hmm. But um, then for that, you have to tell them the story of the land where you come from, not only in terms of wars or genocide or, uh, you know, instability or poverty, but in terms of this is the beautiful childhood that I had and, and let's go to visit this country and see the landscape and the people, if there are still some people and how beautiful it can be too. for them to love also this country. Sometimes you don't want to learn a language because you don't love the country. And this is... I guess it's that sense of sort of discovery and maybe rebuilding and the construction of, I guess, peace in a sense that that Stokely embodies in a way, because of course he was born after the the, the genocide, but sort of born into it in a sense because his his mother, his grandmother, his family, his people were so obviously in, impacted by it, but. There is a sense, particularly in this 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 dialogue with with Immaculata, of an opening up of a sort of a perhaps a a broader vision of the country and the future beyond what Blanche, because of her own personal experience, is able to is able to have in some way. Exactly, exactly. Stockley is he stands at, at a crossroads between several memories because he also have the like the heritage, the negritude heritage passed down from his father, who is a mixed race from Martinique, from West Indies, French West Indies. And, and, but at the same time, he, he has, it's, he, he's at that crossroads and, and, and he can, he's given the choice. It's not like assigned identity as his father or he, his mother had to, to grow, to go, grow and go through. He has the choice to have different identities, to switch identities. And I think this is also symbolic of the moment. I mean, I grew up in a, in, in, in a, in a world that I, I, I had to choose all the time. And I have the impression that for the new generation, there is, there is a hope for not having to choose. And, and this means also, you know, peaceful identities. It's interesting you say peaceful because that was the idea that I just wanted to to close on because we are we are running out of time is is this sense of peace because the book opens 
with several references to to peace. It's that time of day when peace ventures outside. Peace goes out to greet the flowers gorged with water from the rainy season. And then a little bit later on, um, there is a, a sort of a, a greeting in uh, which is translated as "Did you wake in peace?" Mm, um, but... This is something we all. I was in, in Rwanda last weekend, and I was I was t- when you meet people, you say "Mra Mahoro," are you in peace? This is a way of greeting people, <laughs> and I was feeling all the time. Oh, this is so weird to like. Peace is so important in our culture from uh-huh. the very beginning, and and then that's the sort of the interesting, I guess, arc in the book is that. At the beginning, Blanche has a little bit difficulty with this idea. So she she thinks to herself, so people can speak, so people spoke casually of peace again, sort of almost as if by by that point, I guess in 1997, it hadn't quite settled, it hadn't quite been formalized. And again, without giving too much away, there is at least a sense with with Stokely when we were towards the end of the book and towards the end of the arc, where the potential of some kind of peace mm. talking about sort of peace versus war but sort of peace versus maybe trauma or turbulence at least feels possible for for his generation and perhaps even for 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 Blanche and Immaculata too yes of course and also it it what it i try to say through that is it's that peace is, is always a process it's not something that and and the fact that in our culture every morning you ask people are you at peace to greet them is a way to to be able to you know to check on peace every day how are you doing with with peace and and to be able to to write those stories in order to remind ourselves that yeah it's a process and the, the fact yeah Asia, the peace of Asia yesterday and tomorrow are always entangled in in our way of talking. That feels like the the perfect place on which to to leave it. All your children scattered is of course available from Shakespeare and Company, from our bricks and mortar store, or from our online store as well, or from your local independent bookstore wherever wherever you may live. It is such a, a such a wonderful book, and I'm so happy that Europa Editions are bringing it to the the English speaking world. Yes, thanks to Alison, Alison, wonderful translation. Yeah, really, really superb. Beata, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Adam. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, You can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare & Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.